Most sports try to contain and offer us a simulation of perfection. Baseball is different. Baseball is a game of eccentricities, of imperfections. And while it can absolutely do more to embody this spirit of difference, of variety, baseball still stands out among other sports. Unlike most sports, baseball is timed by outs instead of minutes. It's a sport where people wander over and talk to each other, not just teammates, but opposing players during the game. They have conversations during professional play. It's a game where the playing field's dimensions can change significantly from one location to another. In what other sport do the rules and regulations actually change depending on where you're playing? For example, the distance from home plate to left field at Wrigley Field in Chicago is 355 feet. At Fenway Park in Boston, this distance is 310 feet. That's a difference of 45 feet. The difference between a home run or an easy fly out. The difference between winning and losing can change significantly from field to field. Considering all the eccentricities that still exist, it's just as fascinating to look at how the game used to be played and how, if we saw those same rules unfolding today, we would not believe our eyes. You're listening to the Midnight Library of Baseball, where there are no loud noises, no jarring music, only nostalgic, thought-provoking, emotional stories about baseball. I'm Ben Orlando. The origins of American baseball date back to the mid-1700s. But the first professional game occurred in 1869 between the Cincinnati Red Stockings and the Great Western Baseball Club of Cincinnati. 1869 seems like a long, long time ago. Yet it's possible that a person alive today, in 2023, knew someone at that game, even talked to someone at that game. Because if a 10-year-old boy attended that game in 1869, he would have been 80 years old in 1939, when he could have talked to a 10-year-old girl who would today be 94 years old. There are, of course, a number of age permutations that work in this simulation. But it's fascinating, isn't it, that a time that seems so far away is within a mere two generations of our reach. And just because we're on this topic, and we may never return to it, let's take a moment to push this thought experiment to the extreme. A person, 110 years old, right now, 2023, would have been born in 1913. That person could remember, at five years old, 
talking to someone who was also 110 years old in 1913. And that person would have been born in 1808. This means that a person still alive today could have spoken with someone who knew Thomas Jefferson, could have spoken with someone who knew Napoleon, or Jane Austen, or Beethoven. With all that is probable, we sometimes forget what is possible. But back to baseball. If our hypothetical woman born in 1939 talked to this man who could have attended the first professional game in 1869, she would have heard him describe a game that looked very different from the game that we know today in 2023. It even would have been very different from the game she knew in 1939. For example, this boy in 1869 would have watched as batters told pitchers where to throw the ball. That's right, from 1867 to 1887, hitters would walk up to the plate, and before they got set, they would tell the pitcher if they wanted a high strike zone or a low strike zone. And then the pitcher had to put the ball where they asked. You could imagine how this rule would interfere with the pitcher's ability to gain an edge, and how it would also lead to inflated batting statistics. Imagine Barry Bonds, or Aaron Judge, or Babe Ruth telling the pitcher where to throw the ball. Ruth would have hit a hundred home runs. And a few decades before this, there were actually no limits to the number of pitches a pitcher would throw. No four balls, no three strikes, no limit. It was simply a matter of the hitter choosing a pitch to his liking. This, you can imagine, would draw out the game significantly. Henry Chadwick discussed a game played in 1855 where, quote, it took the players over two hours to play three innings. So great was the number of balls the pitcher had to deliver to the bat before the batsman was suited, end quote. But these aren't the only strange rules. The little boy would have seen something else, perhaps even more unusual than called pitches, he would have seen pitchers throwing underhand, or at least below the shoulder. Because until 1884, it was illegal for pitchers to throw overhand. Many aspects of baseball were inspired by cricket, where pitchers threw underhand. So this tradition endured for quite a while. I think it's fun when describing these differences to try to imagine what it would look like if we went to a game today and saw what used to happen. If we saw pitchers throwing underhand and batters requesting the ball in certain places. And using this mindset, it's just as fun imagining ball players, all nine of them on the field, with no gloves, using only their bare hands to try and often succeed in catching balls zipping by left and right. Up until the 1860s, players did not use gloves. And before this time, catchers permanently stood 20 to 30 feet behind home plate 
because they needed that distance to absorb the fast balls coming in. One problem with this policy was that runners could steal bases with impunity when the catcher was positioned so far back. So catchers began to stand much closer to the batter, but now they had to catch a blazing fastball with 30 less feet of cushioning. Broken fingers and bruises were commonplace, but to wear protection? To wear gloves? That would certainly not be manly. Albert G. Spaulding, a famous pitcher of the day, and later an icon of sporting goods, wrote this, quote, The first glove I ever saw on the hand of a ball player in a game was worn by Charles C. Waite in Boston in 1875. He had come from New Haven and was playing at first base. The glove worn by him was of flesh color, with a large round opening in the back. Now, I had for a good while felt the need of some sort of hand protection for myself. For several years I had pitched in every game played at the Boston team, and had developed severe bruises on the inside of my left hand. Therefore, I asked Waite about his glove. He confessed that he was a bit ashamed to wear it, but had it on to save his hand. He also admitted that he had chosen a color as inconspicuous as possible because he didn't care to attract attention. Still, it was not until 1877 that I overcame my scruples against joining the kid glove aristocracy by donning a glove. End quote. The glove Spalding is referring to is not a baseball glove. It's just a glove. In the beginning, men used driving gloves. They used factory gloves. They used whatever kinds of gloves they could find and often cut off the fingers. They stuffed the gloves with straw and cloth, anything to absorb the blows. And for decades, players were mostly catching the ball in the palm of their hand. This basic idea of catching the ball finally changed in 1920 when Bill Doak, a pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals, came up with a design for adjustable webbing via several thin straps. This may seem like a little thing, but because of the webbing, ballplayers could now catch the ball in the webbing instead of in the palms of their hands. They could get extension, which allowed for more range, which allowed them to use the glove as a tool instead of just padding for their palms. Over time, the webbing grew larger and larger, until we have the gloves of today, which, in comparison, have an enormous section of webbing and create an enormous advantage for fielders. And in terms of how much time passed before the arrival of this small but substantial invention, we're looking at 45 years. 45 years between Spaulding's first sighting of a simple driving glove on a hand to Bill Doak's webbing. Today, we take for granted the significance of this baseball glove, but we see the repercussions every day on the field. Just a few days ago, in Game 1 of the 2023 World Series, 
Outfielder Adolis Garcia made an incredible running catch, snagging the ball in the edge of his webbing. Before Bill Doak's innovation, there is no way Garcia would have made that catch. And then, we all would have been robbed of Garcia's spectacular athletic performance, in part thanks to Bill Doak. Here's another significant difference in the game. The umpire. Imagine you're watching the start of a major league game. Imagine you're at the game, sitting in the stands, and you see several players on both teams scour the stands. They look around, they point, and eventually they point to you. They walk over and they ask you to please make your way onto the field so that you can umpire the game. That's right. In the 1800s, umpires were chosen from the crowd. Normally, these were well-respected individuals who were given all the luxuries available at the time. They were given chairs, fans, the best cuts of meat, and the best choice of beer. By the latter part of the 1800s, however, the umpire's role and his luxury quickly shifted, as the need to call balls and strikes left the umpire with great responsibility. Now, instead of indulging in mugs of beer while sitting under an umbrella, the umpire had mugs of beer hurled at him for a bad call. Respect quickly turned to outrage and contempt, a dynamic that has remained in place more or less to this day. Lastly, in terms of changes in the game, let's briefly discuss the role of gambling in the formation of professional baseball as we know it. According to John Thorne, quote, I don't think you could have the rise of baseball without gambling. It was not worthy of press coverage. What made baseball seem important was when gamblers figured out a way to spur interest in it. In the beginning, there were people who turned their noses up at gambling, but they recognized the necessity of it. You would not have had a box score. You would not have had an assessment of individual skills. You would not have had one player of skill moving to another club if there was not gambling in it. End quote. There is much more to the story of gambling and baseball, but it will have to wait for the next episode of the Midnight Library of Baseball. Our music is A Long Way by Sergi Papkin at Pixabay. Good night.